Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Past episodes of BFTA have focused on patients in the psychiatric abyss. But what happens when the person in crisis is the therapist? This is the first of a series of explorations of therapists in crisis and how they moved forward and found strength, wisdom, and meaning. Today's episode is about vicarious trauma, when the patient's trauma story permeates the therapist and begins to haunt their lives. My most powerful vicarious traumatization occurred in the second year out of my residency. As my new patient dutifully answered my questions, we got to the part about sexual trauma. She then slowly opened up about a horrific assault that took place years before. And as she went into the graphic details of what had happened, I noticed tears streaming down my face. She was so engrossed in relating her story that it took her a few seconds to notice my tears. Then she frantically started trying to reassure me. It's okay, really, she said. I've done a lot of healing over the years. That assault was really far away. I'm so, so sorry if my story was too hard for you. To this day, I can't visit an unnamed Colorado town without vividly imagining what happened to her there. And in some ways, it seems kind of pathetic on my part. I'm crying, and she's trying to reassure me and take care of me. But the therapists out there listening to this will know what I mean. In today's episode, Samantha describes coming out of her Masters of Social Work program with essentially no psychotherapy training, but with enthusiasm and excitement and a commitment to help others. But she quickly finds herself in over her head on one particular case, a young woman whose story and very brief attempt at therapy still haunts her today. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. So I am, have just finished grad school in Chicago, and I move out of state. I'm 26. I get my first job. I'm totally psyched. I think it is going to be great. It's at a family service agency that does outpatient therapy. It's just what I wanted. It's a really small agency. So there's myself, one other therapist. The clinical director leaves within the month of my hire. So there's the director, the financial person, and the secretary. Wow. No. And that's it. No one to guide you. And I'm going to get supervision, and I'm going to have supervision by a clinical director at a sister agency in another town once a week. And that, I, I believe that that has started. So I'm four months out of school. How much training had you had up to that date? So you, you have a master's in social work. Correct. How much actual therapy training? Zero. Zero. So I have two clinical internships. Neither of them are outpatient therapy. And neither are with a typical healthy population. So I have a clinical internship with uh, significantly mentally ill people, and I have an internship with uh, senior citizens. So Mm. I have no direct clinical training. Mm. So you have a master's in social work. You're wanting to be a therapist. You get what sounds like an ideal job, but the dirty little secret is that you have had essentially no therapy training, and B, it's sounding like your clinical supervision is going to be minimal at best. Correct. And um, just to clarify, looking back, 
This is about 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. So in the past 20 plus years, I have thought about this experience hundreds of times and where I was back then compared to the things I've learned now. Mm -hmm. You've looked back on it with, with regret, with guilt, with confusion. What, um, what, what's in your heart? Regret. Um, shock. Um, wishing it could have been different for me and for the client I saw. Um, wondering, continuing to wonder what I could have done in those situations that would have helped that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And even if my, as my training has gotten better and better and better, and I know so much more, um, to think if I was new in the field or knew somebody new in the field, what could they have done that would have really made an impact? Mm-hmm. Let's circle back to this about how it's, it sounds like it's still haunted you for many years. What happened in that agency? Most of my clients were typical um, therapy clients. I felt very comfortable with it. I wasn't, there were no real red flags. A young woman, I believe she was 20, early 20s called and wanted to come in for therapy. Um, Her identifying information, she was young, she was married, she had a toddler. I thought, great. So she came in for her first session and she said, let me tell you my story. And um, this was a young woman whose dad was a very prominent member of the community. Everybody knew him. And this was also now the community I was working in. And this girl, when she was in high school, I'll call her Haley. Haley went to a party. She was super excited to go. Um, She drank at the party willingly, but she didn't overdrink. And a boy she had been having a crush on asked her if she wanted to go upstairs with him. And she willingly went, and she was really excited to go. She told me how she was so excited they had asked her. And she went upstairs, and she says the next thing she remembers is hands coming out of the bed. And this boy brought her into a bedroom where there were other boys, and they held her down. And as she described it, there was a line of boys out the door that all took their turn raping her. And when it finally ended, she was alone in the bedroom and she was gagging, not from the alcohol, but from the shock and the panic of what had just happened. And her clothes were gone, her shoes were gone. Um, She was trying to figure out what to do next. And they must have been in the bedroom of the boy's house's little sister. And she found a very small pair of shorts and a t-shirt that barely covered her. And she put those on and left the house, walked down the stairs and exited the house where her clothes were hanging from the tree on the front lawn. Mm. And she didn't know what to do. And at that point, she saw two boys she knew from religious school. So these were boys she had seen two or three days a week for years. And they offered to drive her home. And she thought, okay, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Unfortunately, these boys had heard what had happened, and the entire party had slept with her. And so they thought they should have their chance too. And so then on the car ride home, they raped her in the backseat. That's um, awful. 
It was horrendous. And <clears throat> she told this story, Samantha. I'm imagining the horror of this poor young woman, and I'm also imagining the horror of you, of, of the vicarious trauma that here you are, a brand-new therapist, brand-new job, excited and on your own, and she unleashes this on you. I, I didn't even know what to do. And so I believe that we wrapped up the first session with her ending the story. Now, as she told it to me, what I very clearly remember is there was no emotion. It was very matter-of-fact. It was a very retelling of the story. And I had asked her, how are you living with this? What have you done? And she had gotten very globally involved. She did marches for sexual assault, victims' advocacy, but she hadn't done dealt with it personally at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and how are you? Again, I'm, ima- I'm trying to imagine you, early career therapist, and getting this bomb dropped on you of this trauma. I'm a horror. complete wreck. I'm not sleeping. I'm thinking about it at two in the morning. I don't know who I should ask for help because the supervisor I see, I see once a week in another town. Um, I believe I told the other therapist at my agency and she was in awe with me, but she didn't have any insight about what to do. And so I just did not have the tools for how to process it for myself, let alone how to help my client figure out what to do. I mean, I get the sense hearing you tell this story that that this still haunts you today. I mean, just Oh, I still Hearing think about you it. Tell the story. This is not just you relating an awful story from the past. This this is you you got secondarily traumatized by this. I think I got traumatized by this. I would think about it all the time. And I would kind of picture how she described hands coming out of the bed. And I would kind of picture her being trapped there and how terrified she must have been. Mm. Um and one of the sad parts was she didn't even know how many people she had sex with. She had no idea. And so she remembers the night, but there's also big pieces that are confusing and missing. And Do you think that looking back, I know that was a long time ago, did that send you as a new therapist, did that send you into shutdown or did that send you into anger or sadness or sort of fight, flight, flee? I mean, that... Huh. I think it made me... It made me angry but it made me terribly sad. Mm-hmm. And when I would think about it in the middle of the night, when I couldn't sleep, I would think more like, uh, what do I do? How do I help? How do I help her? Um, and I really didn't know. And the supervisor I did wind up speaking to, um, you know, she just kind of let me continue to retell the story. But I don't know if I got the tools for what to do to help this person. Maybe your supervisor didn't know what to do or say either I don't know I mean at the time I was so young and so new I thought she was a good clinician looking back I don't I don't know if she had the tools Mm -hmm. and then my client had done a bunch of avoidant I don't know what I would say avoidant behaviors like after this incident nobody her parents didn't believe her um she called her friend the next morning and her friend said, yeah, the rumor is you had sex with the whole party. Mm. And then she went to school on Monday. And so 
she really just pushed through it. When I had met her, um, she had been working in a topless bar. And she would laugh about it, like as if I've turned the tables. And yet she was in so much pain. Mm-hmm. Um, How long did she see her for? Not very long. I probably saw her a couple of months. Um, and then she never came back. I never knew why she never came back, but she never came back. I'm sure I wasn't helping her. Um, well, it's interesting you say you, you're sure you weren't helping her. I mean, that's one possi- maybe. possibility. It sounds like she was in a lot of chaos. She liked telling the story. Mm-hmm. And so she liked repeating the events of the story. Um, I wonder if it was helpful for her to tell her story to you. Maybe. I mean, I think she saw me as a peer. We were very close in age. We were from a similar community. Um, I understood the framework of her community really well. And so I think I was an ally to her. Yeah. It's almost like you were, I'm just imagining you like a brand new surgeon and someone is wheeled into the room and is bleeding out and you, you don't have the right tools. You don't have the right sutures. You, you're just not prepared at all. Yeah, that's, that's how it felt. I felt not prepared at all. Yeah. And yet I did want to see her. Like I would look forward to her coming because I felt this intense, like I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Mm-hmm. How did that affect the other clients you were seeing? And again, you're you're such a tender, um, vulnerable time early in all of us earlier in, in our career, and you and you have somebody walk in who has the potential to just I would argue like blow up your whole career before it started. So long ago. It's funny how we remember our people, right? And so I can look back and think of like a bunch of people I saw back then. Um, So, you know, four months in of being a therapist, I'm thinking, who was I seeing? And yet I can kind of picture the people. Um, They all seemed easy after that. Their problems were big, but they weren't in this category. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, I think I, I can remember some different people that I, you know, who are having relationship issues. And, you know, it's kind of funny to think about because I was in my 20s and hadn't had a ton of life experience in addition to clinical experience. Mm-hmm. But their their issues didn't seem to have an impact. Where this woman, I used to, every time I went to supervision, I would talk about her. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like it just kept coming up, kept coming up. Every once in a while when I would have a client that had trauma, this woman, Haley, would come back in my mind and I would start thinking about her again, thinking I wonder what happened to her. I wonder if she ever got the help she really needed. Mm-hmm. What's, what has been most painful about this case? I'm wondering if it's more a the, the fact of the vicarious trauma of, of having it described in such a visceral, horrible way. And I can remember people I've worked with that describe traumas blow by blow that I feel like still I think about all the time because they describe them so viscerally. And or B, this idea, as I said, kind of the gunshot or the the patient coming in bleeding out and you feel I don't even have the tools to address what's in front of me. Because that would be a very, she would be very challenging for the most experienced trauma therapist. If I knew then... What I know now.
even if I didn't have the tools, I would know how to get her what she needed. Mm-hmm. One of the things I didn't mention is she had body dysmorphic disorder, which, of course, I had no idea what it was. I mean, I think I heard of it in grad school, maybe, but I was unprepared for that, too. And so she would start talking about things like waking up at 2 in the morning and grooming and putting on, you know, base and doing all her facial makeup and having her hair done. And she would often come in. She was a really attractive woman. She would come in with different haircuts all the time. And she was always doing it herself. And so I didn't realize at the time that, you know, this excessive need to groom and feeling judged by her appearance and, you know, that there was a more clinical base to it. Um, As I I was trying to do research and to be like, what is going on with her? And so, you know, I figured it out. And yet I still didn't feel like, okay, now I know she has this, but what do I do with this? Yeah. I wonder if she wanted you to be a witness and or if she wanted your help. I think the witness was huge. Mm-hmm. I think she wanted me to be her witness because I think she identified with me. Because mm-hmm. I think in our earlier in our in our therapist careers, we think our role is always to help change, fix whatever. And I wonder if this might be a case where, yeah, that she was looking for a witness. Maybe. And. and Maybe that you gave her, but you gave her that, but at significant cost to you. Maybe I mean maybe when she stopped coming, I was trying to move her from just retelling of her story to kind of get into some of the pieces of the what does that feel like today, and like I said, she was doing so many things globally, but not personally. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? Looking again, twenty five years later, looking back, what was there about this case that still? Well, it's the case you wanted to talk about today, or maybe didn't want to talk about, but that's, you know, your abyss moment as a therapist that so many years later, only seeing her a few times, I mean, really not even getting the chance to to build up a longer term, deeper relationship with her, that this still is so difficult. I think her story was so painful to hear, and I felt so unprepared, and I felt like... Somebody's coming to me for help. I'm the therapist. I should know. Mm-hmm. And I felt completely lost on what to do for, with this information. And then I knew it wasn't typical that I should be lying awake thinking about her story, visually picturing her story, picturing her walking out of the house and seeing her clothes and her shoes on the tree. Mm-hmm. I knew that this was way beyond the scope of me. Mm-hmm. And then, but she was my client, and so now what? Yeah. Um, How do you think this case has effect, affected your work, your practice as a therapist, your who you work with, how you work? And clearly, it's, it sounds like it, it has haunted you in many ways in your in your soul. But I'm wondering how it's affected practice, if at all. Well, I think for a long time I didn't want to do trauma work. Um, but we all see people with trauma in therapy. And so it took me a long time to feel comfortable and to feel like, okay, if I have a client that I'm working with, that trauma comes up that they're revealing, you know, how do I deal with this? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and how do you do you have in your mind a sort of a threshold or sort of a gut feeling or where you think, okay, this is going over a level now where I need to bring in different kind of trauma expertise or, or I know myself enough to know that this kind of trauma is too traumatizing to me or too well, difficult? I've never had a situation like, like this with Haley. I've never felt like that again. Um, I have had people that as we start processing their trauma, if I think that they would be better served through somebody that, say, does EMDR, then I might encourage them to do that. I may still work with them and work with the EMDR therapist. But looking back, if I knew about EMDR 25 years ago, when this woman came to me, I would have referred her out. Um, and I think at the time I didn't, I didn't even know about it. And so now what I think, if somebody calls me on the phone, one, screen. New therapist, screen, screen, screen. Know that it's, it's your job to protect yourself, but to also protect your clients. That if you're not a good fit for them or you're not prepared for them, for their case, don't take them. You know, I think sometimes young therapists, new therapists, doesn't matter how old, are hungry for clients and we have to be very careful about who we take. Mm -hmm. um, and so screening is kind of a big deal of, is this an appropriate client? Yeah. And if they're not, then how do we help get them the resources mm -hmm. that would be the right? Because it seems like this woman brings up a whole bunch of issues, but one is when people have a horrible trauma history and they open up to their therapist about it, that can be, even to the most experienced therapist on the planet, that can be brutally traumatizing just just to witness someone's stuff well and i think you know over the years we all see all therapists we all see people who have trauma and there are certain people that have a bigger impact mm -hmm. so, you know it's i don't think it's unusual to go home thinking about our people mm -hmm. it's the people that we go home and think about 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 in the middle of the night that we know this is beyond healthy for me mm -hmm. yeah What would you have told yourself if, if you could go back and supervise 26-year-old Samantha and, and knowing what you know now and having the younger you come and, and relate this horrific story? And what would you have said? That's a great question. Um, I think I would have said, you're okay. You don't have to take it on. You can support, encourage, listen, but also refer out to somebody that specializes in trauma. Yeah. And I wonder, too, as you said a few minutes ago, sometimes you don't have to fix anything. Yeah. Sometimes it's enough just to bear witness. Yeah. Do you think you've been able to mostly let this go 25 years later? I think I've let it go. It surprises me when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't expect it, and I don't know why it comes up when it comes up, but I will say I have thought about this woman multiple times a year, every year. I've thought, is she okay? Did she ever do the work? Not not in the, did she ever do it, the work as far as, did she ever, is she okay in her life today? Hmm. Nobody should have ever gone through what she went through.
So now, Samantha, you have a lot of experience. And I think sometimes as therapists, we get deluded with this thought that the more experience we have, the easier it's going to get. But I think you and I both know that actually every once in a while, that really hard person comes across into our office and either touches something in us personally or brings up something from the past or uh, traumatizes us in a vicarious way. And I'm wondering what you're doing now in, in 2019 to, to try to care for yourself and, and, and to be a healthy therapist that maybe you weren't able or just didn't have access to back in your mid-20s. So now 20 years later, I have a community that I've been in where I have friends that are therapists and psychiatrists that I'm connected to and can talk to if I need to. I've been part of a consultation group for 18 years. I think it's been 18 years. And we get together monthly to discuss our hard cases. And I also run a supervision group for young therapists um, to give support, encouragement, education. So if a situation like this comes up for them, they don't feel alone. When looking back, some of the things that I desperately think I needed in my first job out of grad school was I needed community and therapists um, to just talk to in addition to supervision, and I never had any of that. Um, My guess is that's still the norm. Oh, I think I think we need up. it. And what you know, what I always tell people when they leave our supervision group because they have gained enough hours towards licensure. Just because you're licensed doesn't mean you don't need a group. Always be part of a consultation group. We always need to be discussing our cases because cases are going to come up that we never anticipate and they're going to blow our mind. And we're going to have to have somebody um, that we call. And I have one therapist friend in particular that we call each other when something comes up and we go, oh, I got to run this past you. I got I to gotta process. Yeah, what a gift to have that. Oh, it's a huge gift. Every therapist needs that gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness. <laughs>